Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the incredible, amazing love that you have for us, for the humility of Christ, that he was born, that he died. And we thank you for the glory of his resurrection, Lord. I ask that you would help us to see it clearer. I pray that you would do a miracle in our hearts that we would love you more. And I ask that you would help us to walk in obedience because we have heard your word and been committed to obey it. Bless this time right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Small children and scientists both know a lot about frogs. But they know things in very different ways. So a kid is absolutely delighted to find a frog. He knows how to anticipate the way that it jumps and how to catch it. A kid knows that a frog is slimy when it's wet and sticky when it's dry. They always seem cold to the touch. And some kids know that it's unwise to put a frog in your pocket. And it's especially unwise if you leave it there before the laundry's done. For a kid, a frog is a hilarious and a ridiculous kind of friend. If it's a little kid, he might give it a name like Hoppy or Sir Jumps a lot. A scientist, on the other hand, also knows a great deal about frogs. They can describe their life cycles in great specificity. From eggs to tadpoles to frogs. And that's the most basic summation of it. But they can describe it in great detail. They know their internal systems. They cut them open and pin their organs to little dissection pads. And there probably is no affection whatsoever between the scientist and his frog. And scientists generally only name a frog if it's a newly discovered species. And they insist on giving it a Latin name that takes five minutes to say and no one can pronounce. Professor Joe Rigney uses this comparison of a kid's knowledge of a frog and a scientist's knowledge of a frog to talk about two ways that we think and talk about God. We can speak in very precise scientific language that's theological or We can experience the truth and love it. And our hearts respond in song, in worship. We feel the depth of God's love. And here's the thing. Many people, particularly in our culture, love that experiential side of truth. And they say that the scientific side is overly technical and unimportant. But the reality is, both types of language and knowledge about truth are essential. If your knowledge of God is only technical, you cannot really say that you love Him. And so that's only part of the picture. But if your knowledge of God is only emotional, you can easily be led astray and worship a false God. And the Bible is full of warnings to be devoted to doctrine and guard true teaching. The writer of Hebrews had strong words to say about believers who refused to grow beyond gospel basics. 
This morning in Philippians, we find a passage that is both highly technical and theologically dense, as well as incredibly joyful. And I believe it's important to spend a moment on the theology of the passage, and I pray that if it seems too technical, you won't dismiss it. I urge you to be committed to learning so that you can worship in truth and teach others who God really is. The little boy that loves his frog can accidentally kill it because he lacks scientific knowledge. And a little science would do him good. And a little theology will do us good as well. So let's read from Philippians together. You can find today's passage on page 980 of your pew Bibles. I said pews, we don't have pews. Of the, the, the Bibles that are around the sanctuary here under the seats. Or if you have a large print Bible, one of the burgundy ones, it's page 1165. And I would urge you to turn there with me because this is a dense passage. Let me read together. This is chapter 2 and I'm going to be starting in verse 5. Paul writes, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. After urging the Philippian believers to live lives worthy of the gospel, striving together in unity, Paul instructs them with an example from the life, death, and glory of Christ. This is Paul's ultimate example of humility in service to others. And if we're tempted to say, well, that's Jesus, we could never really be like that. Paul mentions Timothy, Epaphroditus, and himself as men who have followed Jesus' example and put the needs of their fellow believers above their own. He makes it clear that this model of humility is for the entire church. And in the passage today, there's this remarkable statement. Look again with me just at verse 5 before we get into kind of the the heart of the message here. Verse 5, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Some translations read, Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. It really means the same thing. When you believe in Christ, when you trust him, all things in Christ are yours. That's what the beginning of Ephesians says. And so here, as Paul says, for us to have this mind that Christ has in his incredible humility and service, it is really part of what we receive by faith when we trust in him. So the next time you struggle to put someone else first at your home, at your job, in the church, I would urge you to look what Christ has already done for you and to put on his mindset. Paul shows us in detail what this looks like as he describes Christ's humility in becoming a man, his humility in dying on the cross, and his ultimate glory, not for himself, but for the Father. And as he lives to glorify the Father, the Father glorifies him. 
It's my prayer that today you and I will worship the Lord for his humility and we will commit ourselves to having the same humility. Let's look at verses 6 and 7 and see the humility of Christmas. Paul writes concerning Jesus, Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Paul says he existed in the form of God. Why does, why does Paul say he existed in the form of God? What does that mean? Some people have falsely thought that this means that Jesus is like God, but not equal with God. Some wrongly teach that Jesus is the first created being and that there was a time when the Father existed without the Son. But that is not what the Bible teaches. Jesus says in John 17, 5, that he shared in the Father's glory before the world existed. And in Isaiah 48, 11, God says very clearly, I will not give my glory to another. So if Jesus existed in the form of God before the world began and shared in God's glory, it must be that he is fully God. Because the God who will not give his glory to another shares that glory with Jesus. Our passage from today also shows the Father glorifying the Son, which would be idolatry if God gave Jesus that kind of glory and he were not equal with God, God himself would be an idolater. John Calvin points out in verses 10 and 11 of this chapter, the exaltation of Christ also mirrors the glory of the Father. So in verses 10 and 11, it describes, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Calvin points out in Isaiah, God the Father says, I live, every knee will bow to me and every tongue will swear to me. You find worship being given to both the Father and the Son. This would be wrong if Jesus were a created being, somehow like God, but not equal with Him. So you very clearly have the Son sharing in the glory that God reserves for Himself. The Scriptures teach that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have existed eternally, one in divine nature, but three distinct persons who are perfectly united in will. But how are they distinct? What makes the Father different from the Son? Well, the Scriptures teach that from eternity past, the Father begets the Son. That is, the Son proceeds from the Father. And by way of human analogy, what makes me a father is the fact that I have children. But what makes that fundamentally different is there was a time before Isaac, my oldest son, existed, before he was begotten. And before Isaac existed, I was not a father. His life and coming into existence fundamentally changed who I am. But God has always been Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. John Piper describes it this way. The Bible teaches that this eternal God has always had a perfect image of himself. That's Colossians 1.15. 
a perfect radiance of his essence. That's a phrase from Hebrews 1.3. And a perfect stamp or imprint of his nature. That's from our text today, a translation of Philippians 2.6. Each of these is an attempt to understand how the Son relates to the Father. And he continues and writes, We are on the brink of the ineffable here. But perhaps we may dare to say this much. As long as God has been God eternally, he has been conscious of himself. And the image he has of himself is so perfect and so complete and so full as to be the living personal reproduction or begetting of himself. And this living personal image or radiance or form of God is God, namely God the Son. And therefore... God the Son is co-eternal with God the Father and equal in essence and glory. As the ancient creed says, He is true God from true God, begotten, not made. So when Paul says that Jesus existed in the form of God, he is not saying that Jesus is merely like God, but that before He was conceived as a human, before He took on flesh, He had the same form As the father. Well, what is that form like? What does that mean? What is it saying that Jesus willingly, voluntarily gave up when he made himself nothing? Well, I think the best way to understand that is through poetry and images. So I've just spent five or ten minutes kind of dissecting a frog and taking it apart. Let's spend a couple of minutes having some joy as we imagine and realize what the form of God is like as it's portrayed in Scripture. And I would encourage you, use your imaginations as vividly as you can as I read some of what God is like by way of analogy. The Old Testament talks about fire and smoke, earthquakes and thunder as ways that we can understand God's greatness. His massive power is said to make mountains melt like wax. Sometimes you hear words and they're almost meaningless. So let me, let me say that again and just imagine this happening. Imagine a volcano, if you will. His massive power makes mountains melt like wax. Everest, in all its grandeur, gone in a moment. He is everywhere, knows everything, knows the end from the beginning. He is never surprised, and his sovereign will is never thwarted. Some of our hymn writers and songwriters capture this well. Hymns like, How Great Thou Art, sing of the worlds that God has made with his hands, the stars and the rolling thunder as testimonies to God's incredible power. Songs like we sang this morning, Immortal, Invisible, that say, Immortal, You are not like a man, that you change your mind or change your plan. Invisible, our human eyes can't see the depth of your majesty. And invisible, you are not bound by space. And from all of eternity, this awesome, all-powerful God has always been and always will be love. It's so critical to understand as best we can, what the Trinity is like. Because if you get this wrong, you have no reason to believe that God is a God of love. But if you understand that the Father has loved the Son from eternity past, 
and the Son has loved the Father, and the Spirit is sharing in their fellowship, you have reason to believe and to know that God is love. And I cannot wait to explain one day to my kids that the thunder that shakes our little trailer, that scares them, is a testimony to the massive power of our loving God. It's incredibly comforting to know that not only is God loving, He is all-powerful. He's not someone that wishes well and means well and wrings His hands. He is someone who is all-powerful and also love. When your heart jumps because you know the awesome power behind the sound of thunder, when you're startled, that is a reminder of God's awesome power. This mixture of God's awesome power and His humility willing to die for us is what drove Isaac Watts to write, "'Tis mystery all, the immortal dies." Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? By his very nature, God is love. And so the son has been enjoying the delight of God the Father. In some ways, not unlike the delight that I have in my children, and yet infinitely greater and purer for all of eternity. And from this incredible existence of power and glory, Jesus was willing to become a man. Think about that for just a second. I have said that he knows all things. There's nothing that escapes his notice. And he's willing to take on a body where his eyes are stuck on the front of his head and if someone walks behind him, he can't see it. That's humility. And yet before it talks about Jesus being made in the likeness of men when he does take on flesh, there's an important phrase that I don't want to miss. It says, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, what on earth does that mean? Why does it say it that way? Is not Jesus equal with the Father? Well, yes, he is equally God, but as the Son, Jesus willfully and joyfully submits to the Father. That's why Jesus says in John 6.38, I did not come to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And he says this over and over through John's gospel. His bread is to do the will of the Father. Paul is saying here in Philippians that as the Father willed our salvation... Jesus humbly obeyed the will of the Father. That's why we read Isaiah this morning, where it talks so clearly about God planning to give glory to His Son, but as part of that process, He willed the punishment of Jesus for our sins. And the ultimate end of that plan ends with the glory of the Son to the praise of the Father. One translator rendered this verse, this phrase here. Although Christ was true deity, he did not usurp the role of the Father. When the Father sent the Son, Jesus didn't say, that's a bad idea, let's find something else. He submitted to the will of the Father. Another commentator noted, Adam, the first man, 
disobeyed the will of the Father in a vain attempt to be like God. Remember, Genesis says that's what Satan tempted Adam and Eve with. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. Jesus Christ, by contrast, submitted to the will of the Father. He made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. That's polar opposite from trying to reach for the glory of the Father yourself. It's willingly, obediently, being made as low as you possibly can be. We have a a few babies in our church, and we're about to have another one. So if you look at baby Alice, who I think maybe is the smallest baby, but it's tough to say because baby Charles is also pretty small. If you look at those two babies and realize the contrast between the power of a holy God and the helplessness of a baby, that contrast is staggering. Yet the son possessed the humility to obediently become fully human. Yet he went further. His humility went beyond Christmas to the cross itself. So let's look at verse 8 and see the humility of the cross. Paul writes, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death, On a cross. It's possible in this passage to make two very grave theological errors. The one is to say Jesus is not equally God. The other is to say Jesus only appeared like a man. Now in our day, we don't have a problem with that. We want to believe that Jesus is just a man and not actually God. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about that. But the reality is this text is perfectly balanced. To accomplish our salvation, our sacrifice had to be no one else other than the Son of God. And he also had to be 100% completely and fully man. And he submitted not only to becoming man, but he submitted to the point of death, even death on a cross. The cross was the horror of the ancient world. Perhaps the closest analogy we have in modern times is the horror of a lynching. More accurate than saying it's something like an electric chair or a lethal injection, which are done in private behind closed doors. A lynching is public. And a person is strung up and left for dead for the entire world to see. And the murder is done in such a vulgar way to show how little the killers think of their victim. There is no dignity in that death. The entire affair is meant to humiliate the victim. Christ didn't just die for us. He died the most dehumanizing death possible as a public spectacle, naked and tortured. And his suffering wasn't just physical. As you heard in the reading from Isaiah, this suffering was planned by the Father. It says it pleased God to bruise him. In Old Testament law, in Exodus and Deuteronomy, God gave his law and promised blessings for obedience and cursing for disobedience. And the people of God were instructed to enforce the law. Certain violations of the law resulted in the death penalty. Less serious violations that still merited execution resulted in stoning. 
But the most serious violations resulted in being strung up on a tree as a public spectacle so everyone could see how this person suffered just condemnation for breaking and opposing God's law. In Deuteronomy, it says, everyone who hangs on a tree is cursed by God. It is a public declaration that the curse of God put upon a lawbreaker is being carried out justly. And Jesus' death on a cross is intended to make it perfectly clear that Jesus bore the curse of God for us, for our sins. That's why in Galatians, Paul quotes Deuteronomy saying of Christ, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. But as we celebrated on Easter, because God is just, Christ did not remain under a curse. Our sins have been fully paid for, and so Christ is now glorified. So look at verses 9 through 11 with me, and this is the humility of glory. Verses 9 through 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I entitled this last point, the humility of glory, which might seem like a contradiction in terms. But there are two things to see here. When somebody runs into the end zone, slams a football down, they are glorifying themselves. They are saying, look what I did. But when Jesus Christ is glorified, he's not glorifying himself. His humility is even here. The Father is glorifying Him. And then second, even Christ's glory ultimately glorifies the Father. So first, let's talk about the first aspect of it. The fact that the Father glorifies the Son. The Father raises Jesus from the dead, making it very clear, as one commentator writes, that Jesus is the Lord of heaven, earth, and hell alike. Jesus is exalted to a position of honor and authority at God's right hand. And it is the culmination of his obedience to death that the Father puts him on display for all the world to see. He's no longer on display on a cross. He's on display at the right hand of God the Father. All the world will one day see the Son's glory and the glory of his humility and perfect obedience. And one day, every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because of what Jesus has done, we have seen the Father's glory. We have seen the incredible love of God. Both the Father's love for the Son, as the Father exalts Him, and also Jesus' love for the Father, as Jesus perfectly obeys Him, even to the point of the cross. And we also see God's unfathomable love for us. Were it not for the work of Christ, we might hear or read the words, God is love, but we would have no way of knowing if it were true or understanding what it meant. It would be like a husband saying to his wife, I love you, and never kissing her. The two can't possibly go together. If you love someone, you show it. And God showed his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
That is how we know that the words God is love are true. That is how God gets glory because we see his incredible character. We see the depth of his love. We see his perfect holiness, his justice. And in clear, clear vision, we see his love. And all of this, Paul puts in Philippians, as an example for us. Both as an example of what to do and the results of what our obedience will be. So remember the context of Philippians. Paul is saying, strive together for the faith of the gospel. Be united as a church. And in order to have that unity, he says, put each other before yourself. And as an example of what that means, he points directly to Jesus Christ, who put all of us before himself, who gave up things that we struggle to imagine and died a death that none of us would die in service to people who did not deserve it. And the hope that we have is that one day we actually can share in the glory of Christ as we become more and more like him. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18 that we are being changed into the image of Christ. That unbelievably, we will one day share in this glory. Not because we deserve it or because we could earn it, but because we receive Christ by faith. And then little by little, as God works in us, He makes us like His Son. Philippians is teaching us that part of that process is learning to trust the Father in suffering. So as Paul says, I am in chains and the gospel is going forward. These chains are not evidence that God doesn't care and doesn't love me. These chains are the way that the gospel is going forward. Praise God. As we learn to trust the Father in suffering, to praise God in prison, to humbly risk everything in service to each other, that is the process that slowly transforms us into the image of Christ. And we are called to walk in this humility now. That's why in verse 5 it says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And that's so like Paul to say, this is true. Now behave like it because it's true. We have the encouragement that we know the result of this behavior. Calvin says, all are happy who along with Christ voluntarily abase themselves he shows by his example, for from the most abject condition, he was exalted to the highest elevation. Everyone, therefore, that humbles himself will in like manner be exalted. Who would now be reluctant to exercise humility by means of which the glory of the heavenly kingdom is attained? His point is, how can you or I hesitate to put other people first when we know that as a result of our humility and service, we will ultimately be glorified. And when I read that, I immediately thought, I know exactly who. I would. I would be reluctant to exercise humility. Even knowing that it ultimately results in glory. And do you know why? Because I struggle to believe that God will actually pay me back for what I'm doing. So by means of example, when someone asks me for money, I very frequently get irritated and feel like I couldn't actually give them because I need that money for something else. I deserve that money because I earned it. 
I am better than that person who lacks something basic. And so I can harden my heart and say, this is mine and should be mine, and put myself before them. Even knowing this truth, that humility and generosity and being transformed into the image of Christ is the path to glory, because I struggle to believe it, I don't put it in practice all the time. And as I read that, I thought, God help our unbelief. We believe that by giving to others, we will remain poor. That God will never pay us back, even though Jesus said, give to him who cannot repay you and your heavenly father will reward you. Is Jesus a liar? We struggle to serve each other because we are convinced that we really are more important than each other. My vision is wiser and better than yours. And so regardless of what it does to our unity as a church, I will fight for what I think is best and put myself and my vision first rather than humbly serve you. And that is the exact opposite of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. So as I close this message, I want to challenge you. Are you humbly serving your brothers and sisters in Christ? When you see someone else in the church, do you do a mental assessment and rank them above yourself? Or maybe more often below yourself? And then have a sense of obligation whether or not you should really serve them based on how you assess them? Jesus made himself lower than everyone else. You cannot be lower than a bondservant. And he was willing to die a death on a cross that was the worst punishment for the worst kind of criminal. Do you and I have that kind of humility, that kind of mind? If you don't, and if I don't, I believe one day when we bow before him, we will be shown to be weak and foolish as our selfish attempts to exalt ourselves are stripped away and we will one day worship Christ. That's why Paul says in Corinthians, works that are wood, hay, and stubble will be burnt up before the judgment seat of Christ. You will be saved, but you will not have that kind of glory. But if we humble ourselves now and become like Jesus in his humility, we will share in his glory as we glorify the Father. As I close, I want to make it clear. We are pointing to Jesus Christ as the one who makes all of this possible. This is where our faith must be. This kind of humility is humanly impossible. Faith in Jesus Christ must come first. And so if you're not a believer this morning, I would urge you to do what this text says. To bow your knee before Jesus Christ and to confess him as Lord and to trust in the work that he did for you. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we confess our unbelief that very often, though we know your word, we do not put it into practice. And I pray that you would grip our hearts with its truth and that you would move us to a place of worship, that we would worship your son now. And I pray that you would transform us into his image and do that work in us today. In Jesus' name, amen.